0: Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14. And uh, so the backstory here is uh, chapter 12 and chapter 14 are all about spiritual gifts. And right in the middle of those two chapters, to give balance to this Corinthian church, which is sort of off the charts in terms of bad behavior. Pagan influences have crept into the church in a lot of ways. In the middle of two chapters on spiritual gifts, uh, Paul inserts chapter 13, which we did last week, which is all about love, because that's the greatest gift. The overarching principle of all Christianity, of all the exercise, of all the gifts. If you don't have love, it doesn't matter if you're the greatest prophet, the greatest person speaking in tongues, or you have knowledge, and if you don't have love, you're nothing. So that's chapter 13. We also learned that Romans 5 talks about the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. So we have the ability by the Holy Spirit to love the unlovable, the unlovely, to love all people. The Bible gives Christianity, gives the highest moral ground there is in any religion. Love your enemies as yourself. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, um, Galatians 6 says. So um, we've been saying that, and I'm just kind of concluding the love thing of, of review, um, but the first verse of chapter 14 is about love. Um, love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not romanticism, although that's part of it. We said it's not even emotion. an emotion. It is a verb. It's something you do. Whether you feel it or not, we are to love others. Whether they're lovable or not, we are to love others. And the more you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more you begin to truly feel things for people. In any case, chapter 14 is the sort of the the constitution of how we ought to be acting in church, how to behave in church. There are rules uh, when we meet together in church. So that's what it's about. Let me just see in my notes if there's anything else I want to tell you. Three principles. Edification. You're going to see that a lot. We've seen it earlier in this book. Yes, I did. Thank you. Edification is building up, to edify, and edifice is a building. To, so to edify is to build up. All spiritual gifts were given for the same reason, not to build yourself up, to build the church up, to build others up. You've been given a gift that you're supposed to be giving away to the church where you go, to edify, to build, whoops, to build them up. So one principle is edification. The next one is understanding that there has to be understanding in what's being said. This chapter, to a great extent, is about one of the gifts that the Corinthian church is overusing and abusing, and it's speaking in tongues. We spent almost all of two weeks ago Bible study talking about that. Um, And so edification, understanding, and then the third thing you'll see is order. If you know anything about the universe, about science, God is a God of order. And he expects that order in church as well. Okay, let's dive in. But so that I know that you're awake, say amen. Amen. Wow, that's a good one. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. I can read lips. I see it. All right. Perfect. (laughs) Verse 1, chapter 14. So he just said, and by the end of chapter 13, by the way, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. We said last week, you won't need faith in heaven because you'll see face to face the God and the Lord Jesus that you had faith in. You won't need hope because you're hoping for what might happen. It's all happened by the time we get to heaven. So love continues forever. Therefore, it's a greater gift. Verse 1, chapter 14, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit especially prophecy. So what's going on here is concluding the love chapter. He says, follow the way of love. That word in Greek really means chase after it, pursue it. Don't let go until you are doing it, loving other people. Make it your primary goal, in other words. Um, One word we need to define is the word prophecy. Most Christians we've been saying again and again, Um, hear the word prophecy, and they think it means, oh, yeah, right, like Isaiah predicting the future. Number one, that's a very, very tiny part of what prophecy is, biblically speaking. Most of the prophets, most of their speeches and text in the Bible is not predicted in the future. Most of it is, thus saith the Lord. A man gets a message from God, and he's speaking it forth. Uh, Prophecy... Uh, in Greek means to speak forth in front of other people. So the primary meaning is not predicting some future event and the next year this is gonna happen. It can be, but it's usually not. What it usually is, is the teaching of the word or supernaturally in this church, if someone's getting a word from God, they stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, God just told me we need to do this and w- whatever it may be. Primarily, it's the teaching of the word. So in a sense, I'm prophesying by teaching the Bible, and your pastor is when he gives a sermon. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spirituals. Gifts is not in there, but it's implied. That's what he means. He wants them to desire spiritual gifts, not for their own aggrandizement, but to give back to their church especially prophecy. This section is going to compare prophecy, the teaching of the word with speaking in tongues. Why? Because they're overemphasizing. They think speaking in tongues is it, man. And if you don't have it, you're some sort of a lesser Christian. I've been to uh, Pentecostal charismatic churches and been asked, do you speak in tongues? No, no, I don't. And I've gotten the, hmm. Mm we'll pray for you, kind of thing, right? Like you're some sort of a third-class Christian. They don't like prophecy because tongues is more exciting. Uh, Tongues means languages, the ability to speak in languages you don't really know. Um, So let's dive in. Here's, he's going to, verse 2 says, for, first word meaning, I'm going to explain now why I want you to desire Prophecy over tongues. Verse 2 For anyone who speaks in a tongue, that's a language, does not speak to men or people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Okay, so I want you to picture that you're in a church and we speak English here in America, and someone in a charismatic church might stand up and say something that you, you immediately recognize. I don't know this language. I don't understand it. I'll bet nobody else understands it, right? Could be a few sentences, could be a couple of paragraphs. And so you just listen and and the person sits down. How much did you learn? How much were you edified? How much were you taught? Zero. That's his point. Anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men, but to God. Now it's interesting in Acts chapter two, the first time tongues happens in the new Testament, the main time it happens, what's going on is the disciples are praising God. The apostles are reunited. Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended to heaven. He said he was going to send the Holy spirit. You remember? And all of a sudden, they're in a prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit just descends on that place in tongues of fire, symbolically, and they're all spilling out into the street, speaking languages they never learned before, and individuals from around the world are there hearing the gospel and hearing them praising God. They're talking to God in their own language, and the people didn't take a language course to, under, to learn to speak. Supernaturally, he gave the language to them in, uh, let's see. So he's saying that anybody who speaks in a language or a tongue doesn't speak to people, but to God, that's true. Even in that instance, they weren't really talking to people in their own language. You should believe in Jesus, sir, from uh, Ethiopia and you from Greece and you from, you know, wherever to France, instead, they just heard them praising God. And it was a miracle that they could hear them in their own language. Um, Okay, so this verse is a little controversial. It may not look like it is, but it is. Because there's two schools of thought on it. The uh, cursory reading, what I just did, would be what I just told you. That a person who has that gift isn't speaking to men, but they're speaking to God, capital G. Most Bibles have capital G God there, right? Does yours? Okay. Um, Indeed, no one understands them. See the next sentence there? they utter mysteries by the spirit okay couple things in greek literally that first sentence reads for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to a god small g now there's no capital letter so i don't mean to say small g but when it says a god christianity remember like Islam, and like Judaism, is mono, one, theistic, God, one God. So if they're speaking to a God, it's in the sense that Paul uses it elsewhere in Corinthians where he says, Satan is the small g, God of this world. So there's a school of thought that says that tongues um, ought not be spoken in the church because if they're speaking in a language and no one understands, meaning no translation, there has to be an interpretation. He's going to say that later in this chapter. Without that, it's porcas and the guy sits down, and we all go, "What? Nobody got anything out of it." Okay. Um, some who speak in tongues say, "It's my private." Prayer language, or it's an angelic prayer language. I do it at home in the comfort of my home. I won't do it in a church. That might be better than doing it in a church where it would, might be disruptive. You're going to see further in this chapter that what's going on is 30 people are getting up, all speaking in tongues. It's a madhouse. He's going to talk at the end of the chapter about how if somebody comes in who's not a believer, they're going to think you people are crazy. You're mad, M A D. So some see this verse be, saying, a person speaking in a tongue doesn't speak speak to men, but to a God, meaning not the true God. That was happening in Corinth at that temple, the pagan temple and other pagan temples, where ecstatic speech occurred. Satanists, um, uh, Hindus, there are several um, other religions and cults where people speak in tongues. It's not unique to Christianity. Indeed, no one understands them. That's a key word in this chapter that has to be understandable what, it, what is said, otherwise nobody will learn. They utter mysteries by the spirit. My Bible, it's capitalized, spirit, S. But in the Greek, it's the word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, which can mean spirit, breath, or wind. So some scholars see this verse and say tongues is uh, something that ought not be spoken in the church because people are speaking to a God. Skip down, and we're certainly not, not going to skip all the verses between these two, but go to verse 22. Do you see it there? Same chapter. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. I just wanted to plant that idea in your head. We'll get there. Stay with me in verse uh, 2. So, um, nobody should say that they are speaking in tongues, spreading a message to people, because this verse, verse 2, says they're speaking to God. Whether it's the real God or a God, Scholars disagree about, but what their tongues are not for, people speaking to other people. That's prophecy, verse three. But the one who prophesies teaches, preaches. Sometimes a prophet would have bad things to say, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah would say, "Thus saith the Lord," and it wasn't good about Israel. It was warnings. You better, we better wake up, or this is going to happen. People like their ears tickled. Have you noticed that? And I'd much rather hear a positive message, like that guy on TV who blinks a lot, whose initials are Joel Osteen. But anyway, um, uh, and that certainly wasn't an endorsement if you've never been here before. But the one who prophesies speaks to men or people for their strengthening edification, for their edification, encouraging comfort. He's saying, which sounds better to you when you hear it that way? Tongues, somebody speaks, no interpretation. Nobody understood a word they said, and the person sat down. Now, the person who did it might feel like, see how spiritual I am? Maybe he got something out of it, but he doesn't even know what he said. Neither do any of us. Contrast that with verse 3. The one who teaches, prophesies, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Much better That it's understandable, that people can get something out of it, that they can grow. Um, I've had people say it's my private prayer language, as I said, just between me and God. In the Bible, there's nobody praying in a tongue to God. God certainly doesn't need that. When Jesus prays in John 17, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prays elsewhere, it's in the language of the day, understandable. Right. Okay. So it's much better to speak intelligibly for strengthening, encouraging and comfort. I'm still looking at notes. Um, Matthew 6, 7 says, when you pray, Jesus talking, do not use meaningless repetition as pagans do. Interesting. Um, They pray, they think they'll be heard for their many words, that passage says. Let's keep rolling. Verse four. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies or builds up the church, the people in it. Now, just taking that on a surface level, anybody thinking about it would say, well, it's better to edify the church than edify yourself. But there might be some people who say, well, at least the person Joe got up and spoke in a tongue and nobody understood. But this says at least he edified himself. He built himself up. I don't know that this is meant in a positive light. It's like saying Joe just did something to build himself up. Earlier in this book, we talked about knowledge puffs up. Right. And that's not a positive thing. Being full of hot air, in other words. So if the person that speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. The one who prophesies edifies the church because there's learning. Verse 5. So is Paul completely down on speaking in tongues? No. I would like everyone of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be, there's that word again, edified. So this is a situation where somebody gets up and speaks in a tongue, a language, nobody knows what they said, but Jeff here has the gift of interpretation and he hears it in, because of his gift, in a language he can understand. And he says, he stands up and says, well, what Randy just said is that our church will not grow until we are all willing to be a family under God's headship, you know, something really scriptural. Obviously, all things, what does the Bible say over and over? Test all things, hold fast to that which is good or true. Why are you saying that, Joe? Because Jeff might get up and say, well, what the tongue speaker said was, um, we don't need our Bibles, we just need to go hug a tree. (laughs) Is that biblical? So we'd have to throw that out, wouldn't we? It would have to agree with the Bible. Nothing against hugging trees, but it's not a scriptural lesson, right? So we have to test everything according to, does this line up with what the revealed Word of God says? I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues. He means the legitimate gift, but I'd rather have you prophesy, teach, um, exhort somebody encourage somebody comfort somebody pray with somebody the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless there's an interpretation so the church can be edified does that mean paul literally wishes every single christian would speak in tongues no He's using hyperbole here, which is an exaggeration for emphasis. What does that mean? It means just like in chapter seven, he's talking about marriage. Do you remember? I'm single. Paul's saying some of you are married. Stay in the situation you're in. But if you're lustful and you need to get married or you're in love with somebody, you want, get married. If you can stay single, you can serve the Lord better and travel around and all that. In that chapter, he says, I wish you were all like me, single. Does he really mean that? No, not literally. It's figurative. It's hyper hyperbole exaggeration for emphasis. So um, somebody interpreting is necessary. We're going to find out later on. The church being edified appears again and again and again and again. Uh, Prophecy is speaking person, usually to people. It can be person to person, but usually it's person to people, right? And there's people learning and growing um let's see yeah we already talked about that um who's being edified is the difference uh, pretty obviously right uh verse six is that where we left off now brothers and sisters if i come to you and he's the apostle paul if i come to you and speak in tongues What good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? What do those things have in common? They're all intelligible, right? He's going to make a bunch of analogies about things being intelligible versus being, for lack of a better term, noise. Because let's face it. is the same as speaking in a tongue if nobody understands what's being said. You get just as much out of it, right? That's what he's saying. There's very, very little value. If he comes speaking in tongues, um, he won't be any good unless there's revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction, some teaching. Verse 7, here's example number one. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe, flute or harp. How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Have you ever been uh, around a piano when there's a three-year-old who has discovered that they can go for about a half an hour until somebody says, please stop that, right? He may be enjoying it, but there's no distinction in the notes. There's no melody. There's no rhythm. There's no phrasing in the notes. It's just noise. Okay. Even in things that aren't alive is the analogy. Um, So pipe and harp, lifeless things that make sounds. There's got to be a distinction in the notes. Um, Even songs that you know. I mean, the whole, there's a whole TV show based on this idea. Name that tune. Do you remember that show? Which is they play songs without the lyrics, and by the melody, you're able to recognize. Oh, I know what song that is. Right. So that even the melody can evoke can evoke in a listener some emotion. I could go to the piano and play something very sad, and you'd know it's not. Yip, zippity doo die, there's something, there's a sad song. Or on the other hand, I could play something very up and without any words, you'd get something out of the music. That's his point there. Again, verse 8: if the trumpet or bugle does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? This is in the days when the call to war was done with a bugle, right? I mean, in the Civil War. Uh, I believe we did that, and maybe even before that in America. The bugler would have to be sure, you sure you got the right notes? Because if he played, that's a whole different song, right? That's like somebody's died and went to their funeral. So he's got to play the right notes. The point is, there's a message, even in notes, that people will know that's the call to war, or that's the call to retreat, or that's saying... Dinner served, or whatever it may be. Or Herb Albert is in town. Most of you don't know who that is. Okay. Who will get ready for battle? Verse nine. So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible, understandable, meaning words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. Remember earlier, by the spirit, it could be that he's saying it's just air going into air. Um, I believe that in that church, what was going on was it was a sort of a battle for attention. Some people, if you noticed, love attention more than others. So the be- way to do it is to stand up and speak in a tongue. The problem with speaking in a tongue is, as you heard me do earlier, you can fake it if you want, right? Because nobody here is going to go, that wasn't real Swahili right there, what he said. I'm an expert. We don't know what language it is. You could fake it just to fit in. They were very much overemphasizing this gift. Intelligible words. How will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. In other words, just kind of emptiness. Um, Let's see. uh, We talked about that. You're speaking into the air. In other words, not speaking into hearts and minds. Just into the air. It's floating away. Um, Verse 10. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. It's kind of a duh, kind of an obvious thing, right? Why would there be a language that, what language do you speak? Well, it's hard to explain because it doesn't have any meaning. What's the point of language except meaning? Communication, right? In the world right now, there are about 7,000 different languages. Um, Let's see. So in verse 10, all, all kinds of languages, all sorts of languages in the word world, none of them is without meaning. Um, let's see. This is a what's called, I hope I pronounced this right, onomatopoeia. It's a category. Is that right? Somebody nodded. This is a category of words where the word has no meaning of its own. It is simply imitating a sound. An example of that kind of a word, I won't try to pronounce it again, is the fly goes bzzz, and the wind went whoosh. Uh, that sort of thing. Okay, that's the word that is being used there, uh, barbaros, from which we get barbarian. Barbarian was a word when foreigners came from faraway lands. The Greeks heard them talk, and it sounded to them like bar 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 bar. So they said, "He's a barbar." Bar barbarian. That's how they got the word. So he's saying that with all these languages, verse uh, 10 and 11, none of them's without meaning. Verse 11, if I don't grasp the meaning of what someone's saying, I am a, there's the word, foreigner, barbarian to the speaker, and the speaker's a barbarian or foreigner to me no communication. We said about two weeks ago when we were talking about speaking in tongues, many scholars think the gift of speaking in tongues was God reversing the curse that was at the um, Tower of Babel. If you remember that story in the Old Testament in Genesis, people, mankind, all spoke the same language. With all that knowledge coming together, those brilliant minds, they decided, who needs God? We're going to build a tower to heaven to demonstrate we don't need God. God, to stop that whole process, confounds their language into many different languages to where these two can communicate. I don't know what they're saying, but they can hang out with him who speaks the same language. And Susan and I would speak the same language so we could talk, but everybody would kind of separate. He's trying to break up the party of paganism that was occurring so early in human history. In any case, um, there has to be intelligible communication is the point. Um, if, I, if we don't understand each other, we're a foreigner to the speaker, the speaker's a foreigner to me. So it is, verse 12, so it is with you, you all, in other words, plural, in the church. Since you're eager for gifts of the spirit, again, it's the word spirituals, try to excel in those that build up the church. That's the purpose of the gifts. So uh, he wants them to get their mind. It has to be understandable in order to build each other up. Verse 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. What this implies is the vast majority of people that would speak in some foreign language they never learned before, it must feel kind of like a weird feeling But then they suddenly realize, you know, nobody understood, and even I don't even know what I said. So that person ought to pray, thank you for giving me the gift of tongues. Would you please give me or someone else the gift of interpretation so that people can be built up and can learn? Uh, Pray that they can interpret. Um, Let's see. Yeah. Um, By the way, if you look back at chapter 12, go there for a second with me. I want to give you an example of the disorder that's going on in Corinth. People are prophesying. People are speaking in tongues. It's kind of a madhouse. I'll show you later on in chapter 14. In the course of that, some stuff that's getting said, everybody's in such a frenzy that people are saying really unbiblical things, and people are saying, amen. Look at chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, or Jesus is anathema, or cursed. Can you imagine? I'm speaking in tongues, and somebody interprets what he said was, Jesus is cursed. Hopefully, a church where they know the Bible, they would all say, what? No, that's not biblical. Please sit down and be quiet. Um, Obviously, he wouldn't say that if somebody uh, hadn't done it. Look at the rest of verse three, and no one, uh, let's see, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean you couldn't say those words, but somebody that is really praising God and saying that he's Lord, that comes from the Spirit of God. Um, Peter tells Jesus, I say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember that? And Jesus says, you're blessed, Simon. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, it came from the Spirit from my Father. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians 14 with me. Are you still awake? Say, Amen. Amen. Okay, very good. Zoom, anybody asleep? Nope. I'll give it to you. Oh, there's another Amen sign. I love it. Okay. Um, we covered that. Verse 15. No, verse 14. 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays... But my mind is, there it is, unfruitful. There's no growth, there's no learning, there's no change, there's no edification, because even the person speaking doesn't understand. Are you seeing? He's trying to give you as many reasons as possible why tongues is greatly inferior to prophecy, teaching, knowledge, uh, encouragement, stuff you can understand. Uh, verse 15. So, yeah, the mind is sort of disengaged. uh, Paul is saying, I don't want to do that. I want to speak with both my spirit and my mind. Mm -hmm. Verse 15. What shall I do? So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding my rational mind my language my own voice my brain i will sing with my spirit but i i will also sing with understanding i was in a church in the 70s where not only was there speaking in tongues but there was singing in tongues and it was beautiful but i realized that i don't know what they're saying right? might be the alphabet song for all I know. Um, he's saying, I will do both. Pray with the spirit, but I want to pray with my understanding, sing with my spirit, sing with understanding. It's almost like a song that there's no words to that everybody hums along. It's nice to hear the melody. What are the words? Nobody knows. Mm-hmm, kind of thing. Verse 16, otherwise... When you are praising God in the Spirit, assuming you are, how can someone else who's now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? Um, This is a good time, as, as good a time as any, to explain what is the word amen. It's a Hebrew word, amen. It really means I agree so be it. Right on. You know, there's a hundred ways you could say it in English. It's a way of saying, uh, I'm with you. Amen. In the synagogues and in the temple, when someone was teaching from the Old Testament, the Jews were constantly, almost like a charismatic church today would be now. You go to the black churches in the South with the fans, and and, amen! They're They're shouting it out. It's a beautiful thing, and it's not I do it sort of just as a joke to keep you awake, but it's an important word. Amen means so be it. I agree that we end prayers with amen, correct? Okay, Uh, so his point in verse 16 is um, when you're praising God, so-called, in your spirit, if nobody can understand you, how can they agree? How can they say amen? They don't know what you're saying. There has to be intelligible communication done. Um we said last week, or maybe it was the week before, that there have been missionary groups who spoke in tongues and decided, let's all, you know, get a bunch of donations. We'll fly to, you know, Zaire or China or somewhere where we don't even know the language. We don't even need to study the language. God's just going to give it to us. We'll speak in tongues. People will get saved. They get all the way over there, get off the plane and Nothing happens. If God wanted to do that, could He do it? Absolutely. Could somebody speak in tongues today? Yes. As I've told you, my position is I believe that the gift of tongues faded out with the closing of the canon of scripture in the first century. Could God still do it in the second century or the 21st century? Absolutely. But I don't see it as being normative. I don't see it uh, happening biblically very often. So it's not a thing you can do to just say, I'm going to go to some other country and they'll understand. Um, Yeah, we talked about amen. Uh, Let's see, verse 16, I want to go back to something there. Um, mm -hmm, Or maybe it was verse 15. I will sing with my spirit, I'll also sing with my understanding. It's interesting, the word for sing in Hebrew originally meant to, to um, play a musical instrument. Then it came to mean sing, as in your voice is a musical instrument, and it meant to sing with a musical instrument. That's the, how that word came to mean singing. What's your point? There are denominations where they don't allow musical instruments right? Some church of God, uh, there are others, no musical instruments, just a cappella. But in the Old Testament, there's the lyre, the lute, there's the flute, there's the cymbal and the drums. And so I uh, thought I'd throw that in at no extra charge to your credit card. Um, you, verse 17, you're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. And remember, as we've said again and again and again, the point of the gifts in the church is to build up, edify the church. Um, Let's see. Let's keep rolling. Um, Now, this is a surprising verse. Verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Kind of comes out of left field, right? It almost sounds a little... Conceited, right? I thank God. He's saying giving the glory to God. That's good. He speaks in tongues more than all of them. Presumably based on what he said in this chapter, when he does it, there's an interpretation every time, or he has the interpretation of what he said coming from God. Here's what I just said from God kind of thing. So I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Verse 19, but in the church, See the difference? I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a language, in a tongue that nobody knows. Get the picture? Five words you can understand are better than 10,000. He's showing that the value of preaching, teaching, knowledge, prophecy is far superior to tongues for that reason. Because he wants them to kind of let go of the whole tongue thing. We said last week that in uh, it's interesting. Tongues occurs briefly in chapter 2 of Acts. And again, very briefly in chapter 12, I think it is, of Acts. It's here and nowhere else. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, Hebrews. There's no mention of tongues. It has led some people to believe that it was already diminishing as time went on. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but I'd rather speak five words you can understand to get something out of it, he's saying. Verse uh, 20. Oh, um, yeah, that's that verse. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8:1. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, builds up. Look at, listen to Romans 15:2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ didn't please himself, he was here to give to others. It's interesting that Jesus does a variety in the gospel a variety of miracles. Have you noticed? He never does a miracle for himself. You notice that? The the time that he had a chance to was when the devil tempted him in the wilderness. Do you remember? And he was hungry, right? And the devil knows that and says, aiming right at the weak point of that moment, hey, you're the son of God. Why don't you tell these stones to become bread? make yourself a couple of loaves of sourdough there, Jesus, do it. And Jesus um, always replies with scripture, he never does a miracle only for others, not for himself. The other time he had an opportunity to do a miracle for himself is on the cross, or when he's getting whipped and beaten, he could have flicked those people into the next century, right? And laid them all out. Um, The hint of that, by the way, is the arrest of Jesus in the gospel of John. Do you remember that? It's the only place where it appears in the Bible. Um, I'm going to see if I can wing it and find it. I think it's John 19. Turn there. I'm probably wrong, uh, but it's right around there. Maybe I'm too early. John, uh, this was one of our kids' famous, uh, most most favorite verses. No, it isn't 19. Is it 18 mm mm-hmm. Jesus arrested, yes. Um, look at John 18, just for fun. Uh, verse 2, now Judas, who, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove of trees, in other words, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, ran in the other direction. Is that what it says? No, of course not. Went out to them and said, who is it you want? So they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. That's who we're looking for, right? We put out an APB on him. He's a wanted man. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I'm still in verse five. I am he, Jesus replied. Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him, with them. In the Greek, that verse says, I am. The he is implied. What's your point? Old Testament, what's the name of God? I am. Exodus 3, God tells Moses, Tell them, I am sent you. I have self existence. Jesus, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Look at verse 4, or 6, sorry. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who's they? Go back to verse 3. A detachment of soldiers, Judas, some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. It's a huge group. They all fall backwards. In the Bible, the enemies of God always, by the way, fall backwards. The friends of God fall forwards in worship. Okay. That's enough. In John, I just think that's, I used to tell my kids, it was the greatest act of martial arts ever. He didn't even touch anyone and they all fell backwards. In any case, go back to 1 Corinthians with me. Verse 20 sums it up. In case you think I'm being too hard on the Corinthians for their love of tongues and showy gifts, verse 20, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Translation, we said last week, right? Joan Rivers, grow up. That's what he's saying. You guys are so immature in the things that you think are so great and so wrong about what really matters. Um, In regard to evil, be infants. In other words, as innocent as a child is, right, in terms of evil, uh, toddler or a baby kind of thing. I'm reading notes here. Um, Yeah. Verse 21. In the law, it is written. Now he's going to quote the Old Testament. We might take a detour and look at this passage. It's surprising. Remember, what's the context? Well, tongues, speaking in tongues, and prophecy. Tongues are not as good as prophecy. Verse 21, in the law, it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Okay, keep your finger in First Corinthians 10. Actually, you know what? Let's do this after the break. I just noticed it's time for our two-minute break to stretch our aging bodies. Let's do that. Don't go away. I'm just going to turn this screen off. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are still in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, but we're taking a little detour. Turn with me to Isaiah Fifty. sorry, 28. Isaiah 28. It's worth finding. Um, If you go to the middle of the Bible is usually Psalms right around there. Take a right from Psalms and you'll find Isaiah. It's a long book. Isaiah 28, where tongues are mentioned in the Old Testament, listen, as a judgment against evil Israel. It's a punishment in the book of Isaiah 28 chapter 28. okay, backstory. here's what's going on. Uh, let's see. Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Some tribes are in the Northern kingdom, some in the southern kingdom. What happens is um, 70 oh, let's see 722 BC the northern kingdom of Israel, is taken captive by the assyrians why didn't god protect them joe i thought they were his people they are his people but they were disobedient they didn't want to listen to prophecy they were kind of living pagan lives that weren't uh, that were sinful god had warned them eventually the assyrians came and took the northern kingdom in this chapter, the southern kingdom is being warned by Isaiah about the same thing, a judgment. Um, So uh, let's see, chapter 28, pick it up in verse 1. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. There's some serious drinking and even vomiting going on a few verses from now. Um, hold on to your cookies back there. See, the Lord has one who is strong and powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, verse two, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground uh let's see i'm moving on uh (laughs) verse six he will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment a source of strength to those who turn back at the battle of the gate and these who stagger from wine and reel from beer who are they Priests and prophets stagger from strong drink beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit, verse 8. There's not a clean spot, not a spot without filth. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, immature believers to those just taken from the breast for it is do and do and do and do rule on rule and rule on rule a little here a little there that verse verse 10 is what we call precept upon precept it's a principle in the bible that you don't just get a download of the whole gospel you learn the essentials first jesus this guy who lived he lived the perfect life he was god and man he died for our sins he rose from the dead um Etc. right? And we're saved by faith in believing what he did for us. He gives us his spirit and his perfect record. There it is, the simple gospel. Okay, I'm done. No, no. There's so much more to learn, precept upon precept, and we learn about prayer and about forgiveness and about grace and about mercy and about the future eschatology and times and precept upon precept, though. You got to build along the way. He's saying, I can't build with these people, very well then, verse eleven, I'm still in isaiah twenty eight with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, in other words, he's saying, unless you repent, just like the northern kingdom, Babylonians, a foreign kingdom are going to come is going to come, take over your land and take you captive in a language with a language you don't understand, so that by hearing that language, hopefully you'll realize we should have listened when we had intelligible speech, and we didn't. Um, verse 12, to whom is he saying, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. And, And then verse 13, he repeats the precept on precept thing so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured captive. So that whole chapter, we don't have to read the whole thing. It's a warning to the Southern kingdom, don't be like the northern kingdom. Listen to the prophets. The problem is, as I said earlier, prophets often say, thus saith the Lord, you are a sinful people. And already there's people going, I don't want to hear that. Get the positive guy up here. Is Joel Osteen available? Can we get him? You are a sinful people. But that sometimes is the best medicine to hear the truth. You go to the doctor because you have trouble breathing. Do you want the doctor to lie to you and say, everything's great? Or do you want the truth? Here's the x-ray. You got a problem in your lungs. I want the truth. What's the solution? Listen to what's being said. That's the truth. So this is a warning. Now go back to 1 Corinthians with me, if you will. Um, Where, By the way, in Isaiah, he calls them babies and what have you. Uh, Let's see. Are we in verse 21? Yes. Uh I uh 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the law it is written with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. By the way, remember I said earlier there was a verse that was kind of controversial, two ways to look at it. This is the other one in this chapter. Tongues then, listen are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. What does that mean? School of thought number one. What he means is tongues are not for believers. We already know the gospel. We believe it. It's a sign for unbelievers like it was in Acts chapter two. The unbelievers heard the tongues, people praising God in their own language and went, This is incredible. I got to learn more about this. Who is this God of whom you speak kind of thing? School of thought number one. School of thought number two, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Wait, what's the context? He just got done talking about in Isaiah, Old Testament, that tongues was a sign for unbelievers. Listen, which unbelievers? The Jews who were disobedient to him. He's saying, they were such unbelievers, that's why they ended up hearing other languages, because they got taken over. It was a sign to them, you you are not listening to God. Um, Prophecy, I'm still in verse 22, however, is not for unbelievers, but it's for believers. He wants them to reason the following. Wait, we're in the church, we're Christians, we're believers, right? Yes, we are, yeah, me too. I want the one that's for believers, prophecy. I want to learn. I want to sit and listen to somebody talk who knows the Bible that can teach me so I can grow and be able to teach other people. That's the whole point, right? To strengthen my faith because when stuff happens in your life that's bad, you will rely on the the degree to which you have built God has built in you your faith. Sign tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. To those who say, and there are some, I know a woman in this church who says, I speak in tongues. I wouldn't do it in a church to disrupt anything. I do it at home. It's my own prayer language. I say, then what does verse 22 mean? Tongues are a sign then, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is for believers, uh, not for unbelievers. Why isn't prophecy for unbelievers?" let's take the other side of it. Think about it. Let's say each of you, your assignment was bring an unbeliever to Bible study next Tuesday. Okay. So you drag one of your friends, your sister, your cousin, your husband, somebody down here who does not believe Bible, Jesus, God, salvation, sin, hell, death, all of that. Are they going to get much out of this? I don't think so. Maybe if they do And they say, they're crying, I I can't believe what I heard, I I have to know more, I want to receive Jesus. If that's the case, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not the preacher was, the teacher is so, it's not that. I'll tell you right now, because he's not. But I'll tell you what it is, it's that the Holy Spirit, whether you knew it or not, and you grabbed Harold, your neighbor, you got to come to this Bible study with me, "Ah, I'm a pagan, I don't believe any, I'm an atheist, just come with me. If that was the result that the guy believed, you know what that means? That the Holy Spirit for months before that was drawing him, convicting him of his sin, making him feel empty, thinking, what's wrong with me? And then he hears the gospel and the Holy Spirit makes it blossom like a flower. That's what it is. But for most unbelievers, they listen to this and go, boring, right? And fall asleep probably or leave early. It just It's like another language. I can testify to you that although I went to Catholic church my whole life, I believe that I became a Christian in 1979 uh, when I was only two years old. No, just kidding. Uh, In 1979, listen, and I can tell you that before that, I read a Bible. My brother had a Bible. We didn't have a Bible in the house. My brother brings home a Bible from Santa Clara University in the Bay Area. And I said, what is this? He goes, it's the Bible. And I said, the Bible? yes. Why do you have this? And he said, I'm taking a class. It's a Jesuit university on the biblical something or other. And I said, can I borrow this? And he said, yeah, sure. So I read Genesis a little, I flipped around. I got to tell you, it was like reading somebody else's mail. No idea what was, what? Made no sense to me whatsoever. I read the same passage now, and not because I'm smarter or more spiritual, but because the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and it it jumps off the page at me. It points the finger at me sometimes for, that's you, Joe. You better change, blah, blah, blah. The point is, unbelievers, look at verse 22. Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. The exception is, as I said, the unbeliever that you bring to church, who you don't even know, the Holy Spirit's been really tugging on his heart. He hears a message and falls to his knees and receives Jesus. Beautiful. Verse 23. Again, the context of this chapter is how to act in church. Verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, can you imagine that? the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers, meaning unbelievers uh, or unbelievers, I guess it's a different thing. Somebody on the fence, I guess you could say, come in. Will they not say you're out of your mind? You're crazy, you people. Okay. This room, um, do you remember, uh, Doreen, when you counted the seats? How many seats are in this room? Do you remember? 250 will say, okay. And there's room in the back. You could add more seats, holds 250 people. Imagine 250 people in here. You come in to check out, let's see what Oakhurst EV Free is about. And everybody's on their feet. Everybody's speaking in weird languages you never heard before. There's people laughing in the spirit, rolling around. And that's Corinth, right? And an unbeliever peeks in the door and goes, whoa. Right? You know what this is? Mental floss? They, they think something's wrong with these people. Total disorder is the point. If the whole church come together, comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're mad? You're out of your mind? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes, they will. Right? People know innately. There's a place for the miraculous, for signs. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the point is. I want to learn and grow and understand who this God is that we worship, who he is, what his son did, and what does God want from me. You cannot get those three things outside of the Bible. And if a preacher is preaching from the Bible, you may get the answers to those things the more you listen. What's your point, Joe? My point is this. You ever heard these people? I don't need a church My neighbor told me this uh, three doors down from my house. I don't need a church to worship God because I was inviting her to church. Why is that? I just go on my back deck and listen to the birds and the trees. I know all I need to know. No, you don't. Right? Can you get a sense that there's a creator from that or hugging a tree in Yosemite? Yes, that there's a creator. But he is unknown to you. Until you get to the point where you understand who he is, what he wants, who you are, I'm a basically good person. Oh, the more I read the Bible, I'd say, no, I'm not. Right? No one is. Man is not basically good. By man's standards, yes. By God's standards, no. Isaiah says, all our righteousness, our goodness is as filthy rags to God. That tells you where we're at. Only place to get that is from the Bible. So these inquirers or unbelievers come in and they see total chaos. Most people would not look at that and say, I want to be a part of this chaos, right? Probably not. It's sort of like a bunch of noise, right? Like the kid banging on the piano. It's too far, but I could go over there and bang on the piano and most of you would wake up. Let's keep rolling. Verse 24. Uh, No, I'm reading notes as well. Um, Yeah, we covered that. Verse 24. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, As the secrets of their heart are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. You get the feeling that innately people understand that God is a God of order, not chaos, right? That's why 500 years ago, 200 years ago, people sailed the oceans blue navigating. I don't even understand this by the stars what do you mean i mean they're so consistent they know where they are and where they're going me i'd be so lost gps couldn't even help me but they know where they're going they know that god's a god of order look at the human body look at the cell structure uh, at atoms molecules the planets spinning in predictable orbits with moons around them god's a god of order and and religion ought to be that way as well. Uh, Let's see, I'm rereading that verse. Uh, (laughs) So in verse 24 and 25, he's saying, if an unbeliever comes in and they're hearing biblical teaching, what we know from the New Testament is Holy Spirit has prepared their heart, they are, notice the first thing, what does it say? Convicted of sin. Isn't that interesting? You ever heard the, I have some good news and some bad news? Which do you want to hear first? You know what Christianity is? Well, gospel means good news. But for anyone to believe, you got to hear the bad news first. You got to, right? You got to hear the x-ray diagnosis of your spiritual and my spiritual condition to know, I need a savior. What are you saying? You're a sinner. I'm not as bad as Charles Manson or, you know, Gaddafi or some of those people. No, I know. But you're a sinner. Right? Have you ever lied? Yes. Is lying a sin? Yes. What does that make you? A liar. What else does it make you? A sinner. Okay. Can you stop lying? I've tried, but can you? No. You ever done this? You ever stolen anything? You ever lusted after that? Yes. You're a sinner. God says no sinners get in none. Jesus says, be perfect. Oh, well, that's ridiculous. It is impossible. Unless there's a Messiah who died for your sins and gives you that perfection as you believe in his sacrifice that paid for your sins. That is biblical uh, Christianity. And the person has to first hear the bad news. Convicted of sin. Why? Because most people who don't believe think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm not an ax murderer. I've never raped anyone. I'll never kidnap anyone. Uh, Yes, I sin here and there, but they're very minor sins. In Catholicism, remember, venial sins, mortal sins, he murdered 20 people, mortal sin, venial sin, I just told a little lie, it won't hurt him any, sin is sin, right? So the first thing they got to do is be convicted of sin, look at the next thing, and brought under judgment. When they hear, you can refuse this, but hell awaits you. There are people that will say, I don't want any part of this church that preaches hell, right? It's like you saying to the doctor, I'm going to come to you, doctor, but I don't want to hear the word cancer, even if I have it. You've already doomed yourself, right? He's got to use a foreign language word for that, right? Uh, As the secrets, verse 25, of their hearts are laid bare, confession, confession. You mean laid bare to everybody? Not necessarily. We are to confess our sins one to another, man to man, woman to woman. Um, And we are to confess our sins to God. But this is a person whose secrets of their hearts are laid bare. They see themselves for who they are and it ain't good without Jesus. So they confess, I'm so sorry, God. I realize now how many times I've sinned. Will you please forgive me of my sin? Cleanse me and give me your righteousness and save me. Beautiful. So they will fall down. What's that? Worship. Right? I'm fond of saying that the, and I mean this in a symbolic way, the doorway to get in to see Jesus in salvation is about this high. Okay, it's short. What do you mean? I'm six foot two and a half. Yes, it's, it's down here. Well, I can't fit through there. You can if you get on your knees and crawl. Humbly fall down in worship. Proskuneo is worship, meaning bowing down. Fall down and worship God. Well, that's new for that person. He wasn't worshiping anything Wrong. Everybody worships somebody or something, everybody, money, power, fame, good looks, drugs, possessions, PhDs. They worship something. The most commonly uh, worshiped thing in the world is not money. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's certainly in the top five though, wouldn't you say? I'll tell you what I think the number one worship thing is, self. If it feels good, do it. I want what I want, and I'm not willing to wait for it either. It's worship, right? Fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God's really among you. He's here. That's unbelievable. Isn't it interesting? In Isaiah's prophecy of the coming Messiah, one of the titles is Emmanuel, which means what? What? God with us. He's saying by the teaching, by the conduct I've seen, by the morals I'm seeing in this church, God is really among you people. I want in. In other words, a contagious faith is one in which the service is organized and orderly. It doesn't mean you can't raise your hand. hands down. There's none of that. Of course you can raise your hands. You can clap to songs. Some Christian churches, we don't we frown on that here. You can clap. Please clap. We need your help, the worship team. Amen, Jeff and Jeff, um, and others of you. Okay. Exclaiming, God is really among you. All right. I think we've beat that dead horse pretty well, don't you think? Uh, now I'm looking at notes. Some of you are going, yeah, really. The horse is dead. Move on, Joe. Um, so... Verse, yeah, we covered that pretty much. Uh, By the way, Paul's description in verses 24 and 25 comes from Isaiah 45 14 and contrasts the unresponsiveness of unbelievers to Jews to God's message with the response of people who hear the message, their hearts are ripe for it and right for it, humble. And they receive it. Big difference. Uh, Yeah, we already talked about that. Verse 26. What shall we say then, bros and sisters, brothers and sisters, when you come together, what's the context? Meeting, church meeting, right? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Ask yourself before you exercise your fancy schmancy gift, Harold, are people going to be built up by this? Or is this a showy thing that's going to show off how spiritual I am? What's my motivation? Is it love, chapter 13, or is it me, me, me? Read that again. When you come together, each of you has a hymn. Hymn means, or psalm, some translations have, means a song, where they could either, either quote a psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They could quote it, the words, or they could sing it, right? I have something I want to share. It's a song, a hymn. This is a picture of not a mega church. What do you mean? I mean, there's churches today with 20, 30,000 people right? 10,000 people, 5,000 people per service, two services. Great. If you go to a church like that, my advice to you is make sure you get in a small group. Otherwise, you're going to walk in and walk out and not really, how are you doing? And see different people, never get involved. This is a home church he's talking about. Maybe it's 20 people, maybe it's 50 or 75, but people want to share uh, that's the point of verse 26. And someone's going to share a hymn that I think will bless you people. Here's the song, or the psalm, or the words to it, or a word of instruction, some teaching. You know, I was, this is a little church group where we're getting together, and um, someone stands up and says, You know, I was reading uh, first, uh, Colossians yesterday. Man, did I get a lot out of chapter one? Can I share it with you? Sure. Look at verse 15. Jesus is the creator of the universe and they share something and everybody's edified there. It's in an intelligible language. And they each learn a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation. It may be that God gives somebody supernaturally a revelation that this is really on my heart, that we should not be doing this, or we should be doing more of this. Oops, and there goes my water. That's okay. A revelation, a tongue, obviously, biblically speaking, it has to be what? Intelligible, interpreted. We're going to see instructions about that in a second. Or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be edified, built up, built up. You just keep hearing that. If anyone speaks in a tongue, here comes the limitation. You ready for this? It's a number, believe it or not. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time and someone must interpret. There it is, biblical teaching on tongues in a church setting. There are a lot of charismatic and Pentecostal churches where they have not read this verse or they're ignoring it. Because it's not two or three, it's 50 at once, and it goes on and on and on. And and they say, look, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. We just want to let things fly. This is the Word of God, and it says, if you're going to do tongues, two or at the most, three. The common objection is, yes, but it's beyond my control. I can't help it. The Holy Spirit just takes over. He almost possesses me. Paul's going to answer that in a second, and the answer is that's totally wrong. Okay, so if there's a tongue speaking going on, limit it to two or three. One at a time, and someone must interpret. Otherwise, it's which nobody knew what I just said. Even I don't know what I said. Probably it was gibberish. Okay? Um, if there's no interpreter, verse 28, shh, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. It hints at the idea of do it at home. Don't disrupt the church service, uh, at least it hints at that, if there's no interpreter. So um, this may be, Uh, a verse that says, in a congregation, we get to know each other, and I happen to know that Terry and Donna both have the gift of interpretation. So if I have a tongue, and I want to get up and speak, I know the interpreter people that have that gift are here, I can do it, and he'll stand up and say, what Joe said is, thus saith the Lord, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, whatever it is. Um, If no interpreter, though, keep quiet, speak to himself, and to God. Verse 29, two or three prophets, preachers, teachers should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. Test all things, what? By the word of God. Was that biblical, what he just said? I'm going to look it up when I get home. The Bereans were considered more noble in the book of Acts. Do you know why? Because they took what Paul said and compared it to the word of God to make sure is this, does this line up with scripture? Beware, ladies and gentlemen, of anyone that says to you, I know what the Bible says, but I have a new teaching from God. This is going to blow your mind. Oh, no, that's okay. If it doesn't agree with the Bible in context, we don't allow that. It's the Bible is its own um, interpreter. The Bible is its own uh, measuring rod of truth, or not. Test the spirits, because Satan doesn't go to bars. He goes to churches to create division, to get people to preach stuff that isn't biblical, to get disorder happening, to get people yelling and screaming, and God's a God of order. Two or three prophets should speak. If there's people teaching, just a few. It could go on and on and on and on and on, right? And the others should weigh carefully what is said, again, by the word of God. And if a revelation, verse 30, comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. If somebody's got a revelation that they really feel they have to share, then the speaker can stop and go, okay, go ahead, Tom, what, what do you have for us? Again, we're testing everything by the word of God. The problem with American churches and maybe churches around the world is there is tremendous biblical, listen, illiteracy. There's people that don't know that there's not a book of illusions, chapter four. What book? In other words, there's people that if you say Jesus, Bible, saved, salvation, spirit enough times, you can teach almost anything in people, amen. They don't know. We have to know the real thing to be able to spot the counterfeit. The reason you know that my $9 bill with Hillary Clinton's picture on it is fake even if it looks really real, is because you know there's no $9 bill. There's tens and fives. There's no $9 bill. Hillary's not on money. But I bet I could go to some foreign country and get change for my $9 bill. You want three threes or a five and a four, right? Um, the point is we have to know the real thing to spot The counterfeit this is true by the way for counterfeit money in banks my wife and i have a friend who worked for 20 years at b of a counting money and they did not study counterfeit money they studied the real money in detail and she said you could blindfold her and she could feel bills and go this is counterfeit by the feel she said you can smell a counterfeit that's how well she knew the original Not the counterfeits. Okay. Why are we talking about money? You're going to take a collection? No, we're not going to do that. All right. Mm -hmm. Two or three prophets should speak. Others should weigh carefully what's said. Revelation, the first speaker should stop. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. everyone. Not, I'm edifying myself. You can't speak in a tongue and say, I don't even care if it edifies you, spiritual midgets. I get off on it. Wrong attitude, not love. Go back and read chapter 13 again. You can all prophesy in turn, one at a time, so that there'll be order, instruction, encouraged. Verse 32 But I was so out of control, I couldn't help myself. Eh, Wrong. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets or the control of the prophets. Translation, you can't say, I was just out of control. I couldn't even stop myself. You have the ability to say, I have a thing I want to share, but it would be out of order right now. Someone else is speaking or a tongue. and I'm just going to keep quiet. A lot of the Pentecostal churches where they go wrong is the whole idea of being out of control. Back in the 90s, might have been the 80s, but I think it was the 90s, there was a real Pentecostal explosion that went on. And there was, believe it or not, laughing in the spirit. How many know about this phenomenon? Holy laughter, where people would just laugh uncontrollably the whole time, and pretty much nothing got preached. There was, um, the, gosh, I could go on and on. There were so many aberrant, weird things going on in the Christian church. Um, I said earlier, by the way, throw this in at no extra charge. Have you ever seen somebody get slain in the spirit where, come up here, Jess, and Jess come, Jesse comes up here and the so-called preacher guy touches his forehead and he falls backwards. As I told you in the Bible, do a word study. The enemies of God fall backwards. The friends of God fall forwards in worship. And that is t- nothing but magic tricks, power of suggestion. If I push his head and he doesn't fall back, what are you going to think? What's he going to think? I'm not very spiritual. So when he hits my forehead, I better fall back slowly. Did you see what happened to me? It's kind of all for show. You don't see that in the New Testament. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Don't tell me God made you under Uh, his control. There is someone that does that though, the devil. You mean to Christians? No. To unbelievers, unbelievers can be possessed by the devil where you see it in the New Testament, right? Demons take over somebody's body and they start speaking in a different voice and do crazy things and cut themselves. And remember the the demoniac that Jesus uh, heals? But for Christians, Satan cannot indwell you and possess you. Why is that, Joe? Because the Holy Spirit lives, by definition, inside of a believer. Anyone that doesn't have the Spirit of God is not God's, Romans says. So you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Satan comes knocking on the door, and the Holy Spirit says, get lost. I live here. I don't want any roommates. Don't come back. If there's nobody in there, Holy Spirit-wise, Satan has the potential to come in when someone has opened themselves up to the occult and uh, all of those dark uh, things that go on. Okay, you say, Well, we didn't finish the chapter. No, I know, but we're out of time. One more verse. Almost made it. Let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, for these uh, words. First of all, we're thankful that you didn't leave us in the dark. We have the Bible, 66 books. Written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years in three languages on three continents. It's all your word, every word of it. And so we have a measuring rod for truth. We have a measuring stick for what you are, who you are, what you want, who we are, who Jesus was, what he did, conduct both in a church inside and out, God. Help us to read it, believe it, understand it and grow and be edified even as we exercise our gifts, whatever they may be. And there are many other gifts in the church. But thank you that we can hear teaching and learn and grow all from your spirit, God, not from the guy speaking. We love you and worship you, Father. We hope that Jesus comes back in 45 minutes, but if he doesn't, use us for your glory till he does. Bless these truths and we pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Really important. Those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. See you next time. God bless.